0: Welcome to the Triskylian, the Purica podcast, where it's all about nature, science, you. Health is so fundamental when it comes to anybody in the natural health industry. It's a lot of what the Triskylian, the Purica podcast is all about. And a big part of health is reducing stress. And we've been talking about the psychology of health with Dr. David Cox, the chair of Sport Med BC. He's from Simon Fraser University, has worked with Countless national sport organizations and their high performance athletes and teams to help optimize them. And a lot of them refer to David Cox as the reason why they won what they did in the NBA. They did what they did on the ATP tour. They did what they did in the Olympic Games. He joins us here on the and the Pirica podcast, Dr. David Cox. And David, listen, stress is such an important thing. I mean, in the psychology of health, uh, I know that you'll get to how we can at least try to train ourselves to uh, respond better to stress, to manage stress. Uh, But I'll tell you, stress is there, whether we like it or not, and, and stress isn't necessarily always a negative thing. It also helps, uh, uh, helps us in, in, in many
1: ways. For sure. So, yeah. So, and, and Tom, it's great to be back. <laughs> I'm, I enjoy this. Uh, so I guess the first thing I was going to, we talked a little bit about this was just this sort of distinction between uh, a sort of an, an, an immediate response to a stressful situation. And by the way, again, you know, stress is a matter of perception. My stress is not your stress.
0: Right. And right. the
1: sort of cognitive models would say that, you know, what stresses one person may not be the same as for another person. Another person may view that in terms of harm and loss. And another person may say, this is a fantastic challenge. This is what my skills have designed me to deal with. This is why I want to be here. For another person, uh, it might be overwhelming. As we know, you know, people talk about, you know, what's the most what's the greatest fears in our culture today and a lot of people would say it's something like public speaking well i mean you know my life i've known this guy named tom manik and he's a great <laughs> public speaker but i don't i don't believe that you know that that was something he was born with i believe that's something he was learned uh, as i was saying to someone this morning one of the things that's always impressed me about tom his ability to flip back and forth between french and english uh, and that's not something that people are born with that's something that you learn so in other words. You would look at that situation. Tom would look at that situation and say, "Well, there's a challenge. I'm going to have to give this talk in in, in a bilingual way." And so, I think that the that, wire that's transfer, the first by the way.
0: Dr. David Cox, the wire transfer, by the way, is on its way into your bank account. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for those (laughs) kind
1: words. (laughs) Well, it's pretty easy, okay? Uh, The truth is easy. So, priority, okay? So, first of all, I think what we're seeing is a shift in our systems. The priority, historically, I mean, in a social social biological sense, has been the fight-or-flight response. And it is exactly that. It is fight-or-flight. When the saber-toothed tiger was coming up over the rocks, (laughs) fight-or-flight was important. It was. so we, for example, our eccrine sweat glands in our hands and the bottom of our feet uh, sweated because we needed to improve our grip. Today, that would be expressed in the way of a, a sort of a clammy palm and, and and perhaps socks that don't smell so good. Right? The reality of it is, is that result that sorry that response is completely specific to design to increase our fight or flight capabilities. Well, today you could say that the fight or flight capability. Recognizing that for some people in certain situations it is important, but in most of us it's a less of a priority. We don't fight saber tooth tigers; we fight paper tigers, and they're, they're piles of accumulated work that we have to get on. So, in the context of our of our of a historical sort of social biological sense, the fight or flight response was the priority. Second was the immune system, and that would be the response to disease. Well, you know, it didn't do you. It wouldn't do you a lot of good to be to be focusing on a, up, on an upper respiratory tract infection uh, if you're trying to fly a saber toothed tiger. Well, we might be saying today what we might want to be looking towards is a little bit more of a balance where in fact because you know stress can actually impede the immune system's ability to respond and that, that's Expressed in the field of psychoneuroimmunology, which looks at the relationship between psychological states uh, and and disease and and, and physical illness. So, I, I mean, I guess again, I'm just saying that you know we're we're kind of caught somewhere in between uh, right now. I think we're. I, I mean, it takes a long time for these things to change. But but again, you know, the the shift clearly. From the fight or flight response to looking at disease process and protecting this disease process is something. I mean, you think about it. Our knowledge of the immune system has increased dramatically uh, since we were since about the 1980s. When, when I was a child, we didn't talk about the immune system. We talked about this thing called resistance. Right. You know, and you'd say, "Well, your resistance is low. Low. That's why you got the cough. You got a cold, or you got a, 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 a you know." you got sick in some ways, you got the flu. Today, we talk in fairly sophisticated ways. People understand the immune system. They understand the concepts of natural killer cells and all of those kinds of things that can uh, improve our defenses against disease. So that's one point. The second point I, I wanted to make, and you referred to this, so I have to pick up on it again, is I think that, You know, as as the great Selye pointed out, you know, I mean, I'm just reading for something I wrote here. He he recognized that for most people, stress is viewed as a negative experience that is equated with distress. To counter this position, he coined the term eustress to reflect a positive yet stressful event. Eustress, like its related word euphoria, is a state of physical and psychological well-being that is associated with increased motivation and acceptance of challenge. And and, and you may be aware that, um, for example, 1986 at physician, uh, Canadian physician Peter Anson wrote the book, The Joy of Stress. Uh, Selye's book, which I think came out 51 or 54, 1951, 54, was called, the, it was called The Stress of Life. And what he was saying is life was stressful. What he was associating it with was not a positive or negative. He was associating it with balance. He was associating it with change. And that when the system changes, it's stressful. It's, as I say to students, it's like the thermostat on the wall. The Mm -hmm. body seeks homeostasis. It seeks balance. And so that, you know, in that context, then again, you know, we we talked earlier, but uh, two psychologists, you know, Holmes and Ray, many, many, many years ago, told 10,000 people. What are the most stressful things that could happen to you? Well, number one on the list was, for most people, death of a spouse. But number seven was marriage number nine was pregnancy number 11 was retirement and for most people those would be construed as positive events but what they were saying was in a global sense for most people uh, these positive events also carry with them a lot of stress so again uh, I think that you know if you look at it in this context we'd say okay well you know one of the things that we, we are learning to do is to to sort of shift our priorities perhaps away from the immediate sort of stress response which you can have a and again you know if you think about how we respond to stress there's two kinds of responses one is a stress response which some people would describe as knee-jerk you lash out React in a way that later on you might say, "Hey, I I, I regret that I did that. I, that's not me." And then the second would be a coping response, which is a which is a planned response in which you sort of in a kind of a defensive way. You it's called proactive coping. You say, "When I get confronted with these situations, I take I take some time. I slow my system down. I do some, my mindfulness for." three to five minutes or something like that or I get some exercise or I make sure I eat well because these are things that are under my control which help to mitigate the impact of stress. Okay
0: what's the key in your eyes to when it, when it comes to exercise as as an example to exercise discipline uh, i i i know that uh, we've got to be careful not to be so fixated on the outcomes and we've got to be uh, you know more fixated sure. as to where we are at any one moment but uh, what are some of the suggestions you'd make to the weekend warriors listening, the active living people listening, you know, who are generally predisposed to exercise, how do they maintain that as part of as a core part of their lives?
1: Well, okay. Well, I mean, this is an important one, and it actually speaks to uh, the concept of goals for me. And I mean, I have recently been reading. You know, I read an article that was pretty down on goal setting, and I and I realized, you know, I read it and I said, well, of course it is, because this article is entirely focused on outcome goals. And outcome goals, we, uh, I would distinguish three kinds of goals, and we've talked about this before. But an outcome goal would focus on the actual result of an activity, and usually involves a sense of winning or losing. And so that, you know, it's a win-loss proposition. Let's say, for example, uh, I don't know, the recent U.S. Open tennis. Well, we know there were 128 people in the qualifying draw who then competed for 16 spots in the main draw, which then led to 128 people in the main draw in both the men's and the women's singles. And there was one winner, a whole lot of losers in outcome terms. And often, as you know, because I mean, you've been so involved in sport and reporting this side of it, of course, is that... Uh, the person that often feels the greatest loser is the person that finished second. I mean, you know, they're, they were the closest to winning and they're often the person, you know, that is most associated with losing. And so, so what, what I would say that is in, the, in this context, very few individual or teams ultimately win. You know, they don't, only one team wins the championships. And so what this means is if you think about exercising or performing it means you can perform to the best of your ability and in fact you lose you lose in outcome you lose in outcome terms and i think one of the things we have to be careful to do is not to put too much attention on outcome goals as they can under very clearly losing undermines our sense of belief and our confidence in our abilities so you know uh, that we don't have control over this situation we we can compete to the best of our ability and we don't get the desired outcome so for me
0: you're in the nat- Health zone with the the Purica podcast.
1: The shift would be to performance goals, and the difference is, is that a performance goal is under my control. It's something which is independent of the outcome. It basically has to do with how do I compete. So uh, we can have, and, 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 and importantly, in the way we're talking here, we can have performance goals in all domains. Again, I have a technical performance goal. I want to move my feet more. I want to get my second serve in. I want to, you know, be a better team, whatever. I can, uh, I have control over that physical goals. Okay, so I'm going to prepare well. I'm going to do my exercising. Psychological goals. I mean, by the way, physical, I can do my nutrition. I can do my, you know, exercise before the competition. These things are under my control. And then psychological, I'm going to do my imagery work. Uh, I'm going to set my goals. Now, none of those will guarantee an outcome but they do increase the likelihood that it will happen. And importantly, they're under my control, and they're absolutely independent of the outcome. We can compete, and we can completely sat, be, be completely satisfied with our performance despite not having achieved the outcome we, we desired. There was the great, and you know this well, The great Andre Agassi said one time, he said, you know, I can live with disappointment, but I can't live with regret. What did he mean? He said he was saying, I can live with the disappointment of not getting the outcome that I want, but I I don't want to live with the regret of not doing the things that I could do to increase the likelihood that I would achieve this outcome. So, again, now what's important about that performance goals is they guarantee if you do them, if you focus on them, they guarantee success because they're only defined by your by your commitment to do it. And so what happens out of it? You come out of it and you say, I played great. I played well. I mean, I, I I I nourished before the game. I hydrated during it. I took care of myself. I took care of my equipment. I played the game. I worked on my whatever it was. If it's tennis, let's say, I played the serve and volley game I wanted to. I worked on my return of serve. I ran down every ball. Oh, and by the way, I got annihilated in the score. But, you know what? The reason I lost was because that person was better than me. And so if we can make that shift, you know, again, sort of, you know, looking from a sort of a performance-based goal, and I'll just finish this off. It, it, you know, When we establish performance goals rather than outcome goals, our, 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 our focus shifts to competence. And competence is how we feel about ourselves rather than competition, how we compare ourselves to others. And if you think about it then, The focus here is on intrinsic rather than extrinsic values, which they derive. This is derived from the fundamental reasons why we take up sport. Why do we take up sport? Why do we take up exercise? Why do we do these lifestyle changes? Because we feel good. It's fun. And, you know, if you ask kids why they do sport, fun and friends. And if your psychologist is say enjoyment and affiliation, and in order to sustain these things, we have to feel good about ourselves. And so, my sense of it is, is that this shift from competence—you know, this is why we started—and I think many of us get caught in the extrinsic game in the middle. And sometimes, you know, we're able to say, you know, when you when you hear the great athletes retire, and you say, what, what was the what was the hardest part for you? I love the camaraderie. I love the sport. I, 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 I love to compete. I love to play. And, and they're not talking about outcome. They're just talking about their ability. It's like they rediscovered the reasons why they took it up. I guess I would also say, by the way, in this context, people should have both long and short-term goals. What am I going to do today? Like even just goal setting for the day, what are the things I want to accomplish? And then let's say, like I might say to the, you know, I've spent a lot of time talking to athletes in the last while, for example, about how are you going to emerge from COVID? Like where where are you going to be your goals down the road? And so, I mean, I think, you know, those are long-term goals and you, in order to get there, you got to focus on the short term. Um, the final thing I was going to say here was we talked a little bit about this exam. It was just, um, you know, the sort of, what is it that motivates those people that really, really do this well? And, and you know for years and years, I probably thought excellence was a bit of a maudlin term. And then I started to look at it more closely. And I think, particularly in the context of the work by Anders Ericsson, who really looked at excellence and how you develop excellence. And I realized it's real. I mean, it's a commitment to do the best you can. And so if you, when, when you look at these people, what you see is this, this sort of commitment to sort of the search for excellence. And, and how is that expressed? Well, first of all, you've got to have an opportunity. And we live in a place that provides us with lots of opportunities. Not everybody has. And one of the things that impresses me is the people who don't have it but go out and find it. Like, I got to find a place to play tennis or I got to find a place to, you know, to, to exercise or something like that. So they search for it. So we got to have the opportunity. You got to have training facilities. You, you probably got to have a good support system. And I think for a lot of people, that's, that's parents that 's people that get you into sports and help you make the right decisions and so on, and ultimately becomes coaches in in different areas technical tactical physical psychological um, you 've got to be motivated but you got to be tr- motivation 's tricky because you know a lot of people would say like guys like me are motivated i 'm not i'm not i 'm not a motivator i 'm not that good i mean it's you've you, you got to be careful you know if you try to get people to believe that all they've got to do is you know is believe that you know, they 've got to be motivated there 's that line that I find so frustrating when you'll hear uh, you know, someone saying, well, here's the finals and it's going to come down to who wants it the most. N- not so. Neither one of those athletes or those teams is saying, well, we're going to go out there and try to find a way to lose. I mean, they're so highly motivated. Sometimes their motivation gets in the way. You got to have motivation. That's the stuff that gets you up in the morning to go run and, and to do the work. But, but, most people who are committed to excellence are highly motivated. But there there are two things you have to have, and I think are crucial. One is belief, that sense of self-efficacy, that personal belief that if I work on this and this is under my control, then I can move myself closer and closer to what the things I want to achieve. And by the way, I was talking with somebody yesterday about this, and I thought it was a classic line. He said, We make the distinction between output and outcome, okay? Output is the stuff under your control. Outcome is the stuff that output will increase likely, but it doesn't make it happen, okay? The final thing, and this was so much based on the work of of Erickson, is the concept of work ethic Um, and the idea that people who do well have remarkable work ethic and they have a commitment. And the great thing about work ethic is it's under my control. It's under your control. You I know, mean, you know, an athlete. What you see about these people is they have this incredible commitment to work ethic. And you know, there is that thing called the ten thousand dollars to excellence. Well, as Anders Ericsson said, it's not really ten thousand. It's probably it could be five in someone's case, and fifteen thousand. One of the things we know is that commitment to work ethic is one of the things that defines excellence.
0: You're listening to the Serskillion, the Epirica podcast, and we're talking to Dr. David Cox of Simon Fraser University, one of the country's top sports psychologists. Just this week... Announced for induction into the BC Sports Hall of Fame in the builder category. That's how many people he's impacted. That's how many teams he's impacted. And certainly all you need to do is listen for a few more minutes and you'll figure out why he is in the BC Sports Hall of Fame. Uh, David, uh, uh, all of that is such good stuff. There's a couple of other things that I just want to touch upon with you before we, uh, we called it a day. And one of them is you spend a lot of time as a sports psychologist. Talking about mental visualization and how important that is for high-performance athletes. How can the rank and file of us? How can us weekend warriors? How can you know people who are active, living people? How can we visualize health, wellness, and fitness?
1: Okay. Well, I think. Okay. First of all, I think we do it all the time. I think imagery is a part of our life, and in 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 a sense, we think about things. And in fact, sometimes we think about things so much. Uh, we don't actually care about it anymore. we can sort of a psychological sense desensitized ourselves. I I thought about it hundreds and hundreds of times, and eventually I got to the point where it really didn't worry me anymore or, con- or concern me anymore. So we use it in the in the context of performance. What I would say is we're directing the power of the mind in the context of getting us to sort of entertain possibilities, and so that you know the the, the, the what is important here is that it's pretty clear as the research has evolved over the years is that the overlap is really, really significant. As someone said, as we say all the time, it wasn't nearly as bad as I'd imagined it was going to be because in imagery we could imagine all possibilities. Now, not to be pedantic, but I'm going to make a crucial distinction here for, for your listeners. Okay, There is a distinction between what we call first- and third-person imagery. Third-person imagery is visual and that would mean that in your mind's eye, can you see yourself doing this? So you're executing a skill and it's kind of like an internal video. Can you see yourself get up in front of the group and give the talk? And can you see yourself walking up to the podium and you see yourself pull out your papers? And it's kind of like somebody else is watching you do that. And so that's a visual experience. And in the terms of, and again, the work of... of Albert Bandura. That's basically based, that's based on the principle of modeling. Can you model it? And, some, and we all know that when we see people model well, we can actually copy them. So that's a good thing to do. And I think we do that all the time. We, we run it through, but it, this is talking about using it in a directed way. And by the way, sometimes those images that we might be modeling are disturbing to us. They create some anxiety. And so if you feel a little anxiety, you might want to say, okay, just back off, just relax. Take the deep breaths, do the mindfulness, three minutes. Now come back to the image and just pair them back and forth. And eventually you'll find that you can probably entertain that image, visualize the image, and not feel uh, in any ways uneasy. Or, you know, a modicum of anxiety is a good thing. The, the final way, of course, is what we call first-person imagery, which is much more proprioceptive, much more kinesthetic, much more in the body. And this is where you would actually feel the body move and, and, and you know, it could be you actually execute the skill and you work this you work the skill. It's the golfer that takes the club back and then brings it in or the tennis player that actually models or shadows a stroke. You know, it's it, 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 anybody in sport, it's like Steve Nash it's like a you know Steve Nash shooting a foul shot and actually shooting the shot beforehand. And so it's physical, it's real physical and the body does it in a proprioceptive, kinesthetic way, and that's actually laying down tracks of, you know, the, what, what, the the best expression of that is the athlete that does that and then says later on, I had this sense of déjà vu. I had this sense that I'd done it before. And and I think, you know, I, I'm going to say that I think in the world, certainly in the, in the performance-based domain, uh, imagery is for many people, um, it's a weapon, that, <laughs> it's a tool, however you want to call it. It's a strategy, a technique that people have used that is for some sports used a lot some sports use less but it's a sport that's changing the face. it's a it's a it's a strategy which is changing the face of sport because one of the things that we know is that this is real i mean the body feels it the body experiences it whether it's a kind of a visual or a kinesthetic proprioceptive experience it's having an impact on the body so it's something to be used
0: we're talking to Dr. David Cox here on the Truskelion, the Purica podcast. Uh, Tom Mann, i happy to have you along for the ride. We've just got a few more minutes left, uh, uh, Coxie, but I did want to talk about some of those athlete case studies that, that really stand out to you in terms of those who, who, who get it when it comes to nutrition and positive lifestyles.
1: Well, I mean, I guess I, I guess I think that, you know, that when you look at this in, in a sort of a um, in a sort of a global sense and you think about the, the people who are successful and, and, you know, some of them you and I got to know pretty well in the Canadian sense. And then you look at them globally. One of the things that you notice about you become very aware about these people is they pay attention to detail. And, and I mean in a, in a healthy way. Um, it 's kind of like a, it 's an awareness of what are the things that, I, that that can help me to perform well, so as you know, I put a lot of emphasis in performance situations on preparation and so what are the things that, what are the things that are under your control that you can do prior to, to uh, prior to performance uh, that would allow you to perform? How do you know that you you can be as ready as possible, recognizing that you will never be completely ready. That That's for sure. But you can, and I, you know, I would say, okay, so I have this little sort of wedge that I draw. And it's kind of a little like a little triangle and it gets right down to the moment of the game. And so, you know, so it might be the white caps playing at seven o'clock or whatever, you know, that's when you've got to be ready. So what are the things that are under your control as compared to the distractions, which are outside of your control, which you can maybe think a little bit about because you could manage them better, but most of them, you know, you really, you just have to accept, but you know, but what, but what are the things? So we, I would say, I have my list. I would say, one of them is nutrition, huge. I mean, I talk, you know, I often talk to people about the 48-hour window. You know, like you've got to think about what you're doing in that 48-hour window. So you look at your nutrition, you look at your exercise patterns, you look at a huge one is rest, you look at equipment, you look at all of the sorts of things that are under your control, injury management, transportation, all of these sorts of things. These are the, What these people do is they pay attention to detail. And later on, people will say, I mean, I read about one of the world's highest level athletes, and later on, you know, he, he, he just shifted clubs recently, and his his comp, the, the, the people that he'd been with him, on his team prior, prior to this said, you know, his attention to detail was unbelievable. He took care of everything, and you by the way, use of imagery techniques, these kinds of things, to prepare you to be as ready as possible, right? And that's what you're looking for. You're looking for that focus, focus on the things that are under your control, and they pay less attention to the things that aren't.
0: David, uh, I could listen to you for hours. I could talk to you for hours <laughs> about this. Uh, we'll have to re- reconvene again sometime soon. Uh, one of the things that uh, we might want to be able to talk about down the road is just how the social media era has put additional pressure on some of the world's best high-performance sure. athletes and how they've just openly admitted that they're struggling with that. It shows that the psychology of health isn't just for everyday Canadians. It's even for the highest performers uh, among us, and we'll get to that down the road. But thanks so much for doing this. Thanks for sharing uh, all those perspectives, all that insight. Uh, really appreciate you being part of the Triskillian the Purica podcast.
1: Well, Tom, the privilege is mine, and I thank you for inviting me. It's thoroughly really enjoyable.
0: Thanks a lot. Uh, all the best. You've been listening to Dr. David Cox of Simon Fraser University talking about the psychology of health and giving a, some snapshots that he's gotten from decades of service to Canada's top athletes and teams, and of course, a lot of students going through the terrific program at Simon Fraser University and his role as chair of SportMed BC. You've been listening to the Triskillian, the Purica podcast. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Purica Wellness, and sign up for our e-newsletter at purica.com.